Hey, Kidney Boy here. You're about to listen to another great episode of Freely Filtered in just a moment. But first, I want to ask everyone to take a moment and think about what NFJC does for the nephrology community. Think about the Twitter chats, the visual abstracts, the tutorials, the parties at Kidney Week, the mentorship, the internship, the podcast. All of this is produced by a cohort of dedicated and talented nephrologists from around the world, and none of us gets paid for any of this. All of this is done with very few resources, but not no resources. And to fund NFJC, we ask our users to support us. We are a registered nonprofit and donations are tax deductible in the US. Just about every week, we get offers from Pharma to support NFJC. They want to get in our ear to get in your ear. We say no. We feel that it is important for someone to hold the line and we do that. But in order to hold that line, we need your support. Please consider making a donation to NFJC. Go to nefjc.com to donate. Thanks. You're from Indiana. That state is like all about the basketball. I know, I know. I'm just like completely behind when it comes to that right now. So do you I know who Larry that. Bird is? Yes, I do. An old Celtics player. Thank you. My dad would be proud from, of me for knowing that. From French, from French Lick, Indiana, where he played for Indiana State, and I think he went to the Final Four, right? I think so. Against Magic, probably. And he played against Magic, and Magic won for Michigan State. In 1979, the national championship. We're going to have to fact check all of this. But <laughs> and a bunch of nephrologists talking about sports. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, not a good look. it's not a good look. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and yes, podcasts on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this isn't a place to find answers. We suggest ringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than taking the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, but tonight we're talking about baking soda. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Nayan. Hey everyone, I'm Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride. My disclosure is that I do treat my CKD patients with baking soda and I poured myself a double tonight because I'm already fearing the open label versus double blind trials that Swap's gonna lecture us on for the next hour and a half. <laughs> Swap. Uh, but you're Captain Chloride. You're not Captain Bicarbonate. <laughs> we'll talk it's about the, the hi- we'll talk about the hypertension part of it. <laughs> so I'm Swapnil Hiremat. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I tweet at H Swapnil. I don't have any disclosures apart from like Nayan. I have been a 
baking soda user in CKD. Priya. Hi everyone, my name is Priya Yanaberry. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Indiana University, and I tweet at prerenal AKI. Uh, I also have no disclosures. I do use bicarb in some of my transplant patients, but not all, which we, I will sure, will start to talk about patients that need it and patients that don't. Priya, welcome back. It's been a minute since we've seen it. It has been a minute, you know, just uh, like the Bee Gees. I'm just trying to stay alive at work. So <laughs> <there we> go. <laughs> That's good advice for everybody. And we have a special guest tonight. We have Nav Tangri. Uh, Nav, tell me to tell us who you are. Excellent. So hi, I'm Nav Tangri. I'm very happy to be on this podcast. I tweet at Nav Tangri. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, my disclosures, I consult for... Roche, BI, BI Lilly, Janssen, AZ, Otsuka, Bayer, and I was the lead PI of uh, Valor CKD, which was a trial of Averimer, a drug in uh, metabolic acidosis, and I consulted and I was on the advisory board. Also consulted for ProKidney, also have a couple of companies of my own, ClinRisk and ClinPredict, and happy to talk about, talk about acidosis. In fact, I was in the clinic today, and I'd say I de-prescribed sodium bicarb in a handful of patients just today. So we'll talk about my views on this. Nav, I think you need Excellent. some hobbies. I don't think you have enough to do. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> this is my hobby right here. <laughs> the art yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a podcast. It's not video. So he pointed to, uh, as he's wearing an arsenal. They're not called sweaters. They're not called jerseys. Jersey. They, called? Arsenal jerseys. Arsenal. they are called jerseys. Jerseys, yeah. I'm in hockey town, and so everything's a sweater to me. If you follow me on Twitter, as we were discussing earlier, 50% Arsenal, 30% Nephrology, 20% Personal Finance. That's kind of my mix. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So we're, we're, we're talking about the treatment of metabolic acidosis. This particular study that we're going to be talking about tonight is in the transplant realm. But since 2012, this has been a 2B recommendations in the KDGO guidelines is if anybody with chronic kidney disease, their bicarb falls below 22, the recommendation is to get them sodium bicarbonate and target a normalization of their serum bicarbonate. And this was based on a couple of small studies that came out. So there was a study done in London by Debrito Ashurst, a single center study that showed a 68% decline in the progression of uh, creatinine clearance over a two-year follow-up with a remarkably low dose of sodium bicarbonate. They gave patients uh, 600 milligrams TID of sodium bicarbonate with an average sodium bicarbonate of 20. Not only did they slow the progression, they slowed uh, the initiation of dialysis. They dropped that by about 75%. And you got to graph out the reduction in the progression of CKD. This is among the largest effect size that we've ever seen. You know, SGLT2s, ARBs, ACE inhibitors, uh, none of them kind of compare to this, the difference between placebo and treatment in this study. That was a single center. It was open label. I believe the largest trial is something called the UBI. This came out of Italy. It's a multi-center trial, uh, randomized patients, again, with CKD stages three to five, Average bicarb on enrollment in this trial was 21.5, and they also found a 55% reduction in the doubling of serum creatinine, a remarkably powerful effect. Average dose was two and a half 650 milligram tablets of sodium bicarbonate a day. Is this the one that showed mortality benefit too? And this one showed... Yes, yeah, this had... one showed a mortality benefit. A mortality in the placebo group was 6.8% versus 3.1% with the sodium bicarbonate. 
and also a reduction by about uh, a third in hospital days. With the caveat that Italy is like the Vegas of clinical trials, what happens in Italy stays in Italy, like <laughs> a number of things. So. Yes, yes. And this group has done it before, right? I think they have done trials yeah. with Sevelamor. Same investigator, exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, so yeah, Delorio is his name. Exactly. Delorio is the, is the, lead, is the lead author on this one. Yeah, they, they've, they've got a track record of... Uh, Remarkable findings. Mm-hmm. Remarkably <laughs> successful findings. Remarkable on the Remarkably optimistic su- side. Always. Yes. Yes. Always. Yeah, 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 that's right. And again, that was also an open-label trial. And, you know, in between, there's a bunch of others, right, Joel? There's like... Well, the one I was going to bring up was the bicarb trial, which is an interesting one. This was also... Oh, Miles Witham. Yeah. Miles Witham, bicarb study. This is the one that doesn't get enough attention. So this is a multi-center, but it's double-blind. And they had already accepted that this drug was a remarkably powerful drug to prevent dialysis. So they didn't actually look at progression of CKD. They assumed the close. And they were really looking at kind of quality of life and lower leg strength. But they did not find any effect whatsoever. Like, you know, this large double-blind study. Yeah, it was just, it was like, it didn't do, it didn't do anything. So this is, I think, a pretty prominent negative trial. And again, it's a, a double-blinded trial. And then when I think about this, this leads me to the Viviramir. And so this Viviramir was a hydrogen binder. It was an oral pill that you would take that would bind hydrochloric hydrogen acid, It's hydrochloric acid binders. It binds both hydrogen and chloride irreversibly. Irreversibly. Okay. And uh, there was an initial trial, and uh, uh, Nav here was a third author on that. And it was pretty remarkable, right? This was published in The Lancet. They showed a reduction in Composite outcome of uh, doubling the serum creatinine death or dialysis went down by two-thirds with the Viviramir, this hydrochloric acid binding, improvement in quality of life, improvement in chair stand, all kinds of you know uh, strength. Like It really was a remarkably positive trial in CKD, unlike things we'd, we'd really ever seen. That. And they, it, it was an initial 12-week trial, and they ended up extending it for 40 weeks, so they got a full year of trial. You know, maybe I'll make a quick comment there. As uh, please, please, I want to hear that's what I'm... double blind, placebo control, two hundred patients, but lots of power in that study for for muscle mass and like muscle strength. Very little power for the heart outcome. So the heart outcome should have been considered exploratory, and it appropriately was exploratory. I think we tried to be very appropriate in the discussion and say like this was a great signal. Kind of looks like DeBrito's data, right? Like it's it's encouraging, yeah. but it's it was like I think it was twelve to four. Like, so it was not, there were not a ton of those outcomes out there because it was a year in 200 patients. Right. So what, so what it was, it was 82 patients in the placebo, 114 on Pavirimir. Yeah. And they, the, that doubling death and dialysis, it was 12% in the placebo group yeah. and 4% in the Pavirimir. 12 Pavirimir. to 4, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Good, good so very, very, very small numbers, which, yeah. uh, which can be a chance finding, right? It could be a chance finding. Yeah, very much so. They took it to the FDA and they tried to get approval based on this and, and, and they were shut down. The FDA said, no, 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 you need to do a definitive trial. All right. So, to- so we should talk about this too. That trial was not supposed to be the basis of the FDA approval per se. Well, the whole debate was about the accelerated approval pathway, which is, does the FDA believe that serum bicarbonate is an acceptable surrogate that you can go to market and while you're doing the larger outcome trial. That's the difference between accelerated approval and full approval. So the FDA rejected not, not that trial. Not, the FDA didn't reject that trial. The FDA rejected bicarbonate as a surrogate, per se. Do you know how the FDA considers phosphorus as a surrogate, right? We, mm-hmm. you guys, did you guys ever review tenapener? And blood pressure is a surrogate. Blood pressure is a surrogate. Yeah. So 
the classic yeah. example is glycemic control, right? Mm -hmm. You can get a drug on market while you do the outcomes trial. So this was the pitch to FDA that bicarbonate is physiologically important. There's all this data suggesting that bicarbonate is important. Will you accept bicarbonate as a surrogate marker where you say drug treats bicarbonate, improves bicarbonate, let it go on market while we do an outcomes trial? If this happens, let's say they get approval and the yep. final trial is negative, do they pull the approval? The product's supposed to be pulled. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. The product's supposed to be pulled. Sometimes the manufacturers cooperate, sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. This has happened. There was a case of, I think the, what's that, Mitodrin or one of these drugs is, is one of these failed accelerated approvals. I mean, there's lots in oncology. In oncology, it happens all the time. You get accelerated approval, you go to market, do your trial, trial doesn't work, you pull the drug. Usually the manufacturer pulls the drug. So accelerated approval comes from oncology. And this was going to be one of the few first examples of accelerated approval in nephrology. If you think of IGAN, IGAN's an accelerated approval thing, right? You got to do your first trial, like if you think about Nefegard, for example. Sorry, mm -hmm. now I'm trying to bring more examples in. Right. The okay, so he's talking about yeah. IGA nephropathy. When he says IGAN, that's yeah. IGA nephropathy. <laughs> nephropathy. Sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. You know, I'm just a community nephrologist. I need to <laughs> slow, slow down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Fair. but yeah, Nefigard did get the approval based on proteinuria reduction, right? Yes, and that's the accelerated approval piece. So they got approval, but if their GFR, ACR, two-year trial had failed, they would have had to pull. Okay. So there is accelerated approval in nephrology, but the FDA was not comfortable doing accelerated approval for bicarb. Okay, cool. That's what it came down to. All right. Okay, cool. <laughs> so that led to the Valor CKD trial. This is a 1,600-person placebo-controlled double-blind trial started in 2018 was supposed to go to late 2024. So we should be hearing the data results maybe at next ASN. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, we got the results. It was stopped early. This yeah. was a, it was a situation where the, the, literally the company was running out of money. And so did, was it stopped early because they were running out of money? Or did, there, weren't there some changes in the protocol based on this <laughs> running out of money issue? There was planned to be an interim analysis around that time anyway. But then when we looked uh -huh. and we said that the company is not going to have that much more runway, if we, so why waste the alpha on the interim? Just do an administrative stop because either it'll be positive or if it's not positive, then like if you don't see it, you're not going to see it. Basically, with the number of events that were happening and how the trial follow-up was going, it looked like there were going to be somewhere between 250 to 300 events by the time, and the company tried to go as long as they could. And the, we felt that if the trial was positive at the time of stop, we would have power to detect a hazard ratio in the high 0.7s. If you had done the whole trial, you would be in the low 0.8s. So there wasn't much more to gain. And so it was a, it was a reasonable thing to say that we have sufficient power for high 0.7s, and, and we should try to stop there. And in the end, the reality is there was a negative trial, but it was definitively negative. So there was no chance that had you gone to 3,200 or four years or five years that you would have seen anything different. So in that sense, it was very definitive. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, but there were some other interesting choices. So the, the study design, instead of just randomizing people right off the bat to vivirumir or placebo, you had to have metabolic acidosis to get enrolled. 12 to 20 average bicarbonate enrollment was 17.4. And then everybody got placed on vivirumir. Yeah. And then for a run-in of eight weeks, up to eight weeks, yeah. to they normalize their bicarb. And then 
of the people that normalized their bicarb, they randomized them to either stay on vivirumir or switch over to placebo. And so they enriched the trial for vivirumir responders and then presumably switching off so of So I'll speak to that in a second. I think that, that yeah. becomes really problematic if you have a very low respond rate, but response rate, but response rate to Vivermer was like between 70 to 80%. So it wasn't like- yeah, it was two thirds. Yeah, went, so it wasn't- went from 2200 to 1480, 67%. 67%. So it kind of maybe later towards the tail, it got a little less, but for the most part, early part of the trial, it was a north of 70%. So it was never felt like a problem. I think a lot of the, study team, like the, the corporate history of Triceta came from Rolipsa and Paterabare, right? This is the same founder, same team. Oh, this as is Patera. the same study design that they use for hyperkalemia. That's, That's right. That's right. So they're, you know, the team had known about randomized withdrawal. They had used randomized withdrawal designs. In the phase two in the Lancet, at 52 weeks, when you stop the drug, the bicarbonate came down. So there was no, nothing that would have told you that it's going to stay up. That's the part we haven't told you, yeah. is that when they randomized patients, the half the patients to placebo, their, their bicarb didn't drop. Or it dropped so by like 0 0.8 or something like that. There was no yeah, they didn't get good separation between the two groups. Until the end, wasn't it? If I remember your yeah. graph you showed us, it was Just like the last year or something like that, they started to separate? Not enough people at the end, but exactly. But they began to separate at the end. Yeah. It was so unusual. You know, the only thing we could really attribute it to was that we had to believe that we did not cure metabolic acidosis in the run-in period. So therefore, that must have been their baseline bicarb, which leads you to the hypothesis that bicarb is variable. It, so all we did was when we were recruiting people for this trial, we caught people in their nadir. Mm -hmm. That was the real bicarb was between 20 to 22. We caught them at a time when they were between you know, six, 12 to 20. And yeah, we defined had a big steak dinner. Yeah, we exactly. Or they were, you know, kind of just not a hundred percent maybe overhydrated to whatever it was, but we caught them and we required these two or three measurements. You had to have two or three measurements between two months to get in. So there was not a lot of chronicity. It's not like these people had bicarbs persistently below twenty for six months. I'd love to do that in hindsight, get bicarbs, you know, below twenty for six months, but the reality is, in a large part of the world, they don't measure bicarb in a metabolic panel. Mm -hmm. You can't get it. So in many, many countries where this trial was recruiting, this trial was recruited in 30-plus countries in almost every region of the world. In many, many countries, a bicarb was not routine care. Like so you need a blood gas to, be done in the to get a bicarb. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then you only had to do in the study. Then you got a very short, compressed time period. So you just caught people at their nadir. And had you had this opportunity to catch them, confirm that they were chronic metabolic acidosis, perhaps they would have gone down after the treatment. But all, all hypotheses now. Yeah. So it was just a reg regression to mean. We have, yeah, I have to mention regression it, to mean. Regression to mean is like very powerful in a continuous variable, right? Like whenever you select on a continuous variable, it's very powerful. Like imagine, imagine selecting on anything, right? Select on potassium. Like let's say I'll enroll you if your potassium is 5.6. You have somebody whose real potassium is 5.3, 5.3. One day the tourniquet is on too tight, they're 5.6. You select them the next time, 5.4, right? That happens all the time when you select on a, on a continuous variable. Real problem. Chronicity helps, multiple time points help, mm -hmm. but you know we didn't have the freedom of chronicity. That was the problem. We had multiple measures, but we didn't have chronicity. Couldn't get it.
Triceda announces these results in a press conference for Wall Street, and the stock collapses, essentially goes from $14 to close to zero. Company's now out of business. Whole thing fell apart. And we're and NAV is going to eventually publish these results as soon as he gets yeah, a absolutely. that's willing to. Absolutely. I think publication is really key. In fact, I was so insistent that even post-company wind up that we had access to the data as investigators. So I've managed to get all the data uh, from the trial. Excellent. Because looking, for, looking forward to seeing this published. Because really. we had not only the trial, we had a series of post-hoc analyses, pre-specified analyses, not post-hoc, pre-specified analyses on all the other things we'll talk about today, like blood pressure, cardiovascular events, bone, muscle, quality of life. Like I think all that data needs to get out there. It will come. We've got to get through the main trial, then it will come. Believe it or not, tonight we are not talking, talking about, about- <laughs> We are not talking about Vivermeer. For a second, I we are I talking the about paper. good old sodium bicarbonate, <laughs> yeah. good old Arm and Hammer baking soda in a pill form for yeah. kidney transplant recipients with metabolic acidosis in Switzerland. A multi-center, randomized, single-blind, placebo-controlled phase three trial. That is a mouthful. That is the name of the trial. Does it have a cute yeah. short name? A preserved transplant. Preserve transplant. That's a good name. Swap or uh, now? Do you have anything to anything else about this trial, or anybody else want to talk about this trial to prep us? <laughs> yeah, I looked forward to this trial because this came out and it was presented at a major meeting. I think prior to Valor. I think this was maybe the era uh, prior. And so I actually spoke to the investigators. You know, we talked, we chatted about like. Did you, how much separation did you see? Did you see changes in slopes, things like that? We chatted about all that. You know, like, it's funny because you all end up talking to each other. So I was talking to Miles with him before then. So I was really looking forward to these findings. I'm glad they they got published in The Lancet. I'm glad we get to discuss it today, right? Because sometimes things, this was published in The Lancet, right? Today's paper yeah. again? Yeah. yeah. It is. I find, like, there's like this North American bias, right? Like, I think North Americans don't read The Lancet enough. The Lancet papers... Probably JAMA and New England papers get way more attention in in North America than Lancet papers do. Maybe it has to do with a paywall. I don't know. What do you guys think? It, it, they use milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. That must be it. Unit. Must be it. We're just snobs against Europeans. Don't give me no millimoles. Mean, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I think that's a real thing. So, so yeah. I was happy that we're discussing it today. That's good. We kind of skipped over, we didn't, and this gets into a little bit about proposed mechanisms, but we didn't talk about the background that there were studies like Texas bicarb, et cetera, that showed benefit of sodium bicarb, the absence of actual metabolic acidosis. Uh, so people with normal bicarbonate levels, there's been a couple, at least two, maybe more studies that showed benefit in that population as well. So the Don Weston's uh, yeah. RCTs? Yep. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. There, yeah, I, we did short circuit this discussion. We didn't go through the entire body of literature. There is some interesting data. There's interesting data on yeah. fruits and vegetables that kind of fall yeah. under the same category. Though I suspect there are many other uh, active things going on with those those substitutions, not just uh, changes in bicarb. Uh, but but nine's right. There is interesting. This it's this concept called U bicarbonaturic metabolic acidosis, where the presumed mechanism of injury is actually the, the kidney generating additional ammonium and responding to the metabolic acidosis. Even though they can maintain normal metabolic acidosis, that process is pro-inflammatory, increases angiotensin and other nasty... And upregulates complement. Um, you know, the complement a la Thomas Hostetter way back in the 70s, right? Or 80s? 
I think it goes to Nav's comment that, you know, the FDA didn't approve changes in bicarb as a surrogate marker. And, you know, should we be looking at net acid excretion? Should we be looking at other surrogate markers instead of just serum bicarb or pH levels? Those uh, are even harder. says no. Yeah, those are even harder, right? Because you like, very hard to make causal links. I think Don Weston really likes citrate. Right, he's like citrate is another marker he likes as a marker of acid stress. Urine, urine citrate. Yeah, yeah, urine citrate as a like a marker yep. of this underlying and acid as stress. As that falls, as that falls, you are indicating more acid stress. That yeah. is his. That is but his. harder, man. It's the cause. It's funny. Some biomarkers, if you get like grandfathered in, it's amazing, right? Like if you're phosphorus, grandfathered, right? But a, the burden for proof for a new thing is always harder, right? The just if you think about like metformin and SGLT2 inhibitors, right? No CV outcome trials needed to be done when metformin was uh, approved, but new drugs have to do them. So it's just burden of kaxalate pteromer or same idea, right? So it's just burden. Yeah, but there's no cool metforminator pin. You know, if no, you no. want to have a flozinator pin, you need yeah. to have that. You need to bring the goods. Yeah, the endocrinologists probably have one. We just don't know. They're probably they're probably metforminator swag, metforminator like all sorts of metforminator things. In, yeah. Insulinators, yeah. Insulinators. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! I hope not. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we're okay. short circuiting uh, again. We got to get back to this trial. I think. No, I just. Does anybody have some thoughts? I, so, so Nev talked to these guys. He thought they were cool. Anybody else have some something they want to start before we jump into the methods of this trial? I think we can get there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to test any intervention in transplant. Transplant patients, even if, so yes, now all that we have talked about is that we think bicarb doesn't work even in CKD. But, you know, a lot of people did think that the time the trial was conceived that bicarb does work in CKD. And you could argue, do we need trials in transplant? And I think you do, because yeah. the mechanism is not exactly the same. Yeah, there's right. calcineurin inhibitors, there's rejection, there's so many other things going on. So uh, an intervention that works in CKD, we should demonstrate that it works in kidney transplant recipients. Yeah, so no, that's why this trial was done. Yeah, along a history of things that work in CKD that does not work in transplant, yeah. mm -hmm. and it was well designed, right? Like it's well designed, well done. I mean, we'll go through it. Uh, we'll go Let's through the methods. Let's talk about the design. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so this was all the descriptive adjectives Joel already said. Uh, a couple of them uh, is that multicenter, so good, and uh, single blind, maybe not so good. You know, I'm saying that again and again just to rile up uh, Nayan and make him more drunk. Uh, uh, so this was done in Switzerland. It was funded by the Swiss National Foundation. So it's like an NIH or CIHR funded trial, all, all very good. Uh, in terms of the inclusion uh, eligibility, they needed to be either men or women, long-term kidney transplant recipients. By long-term, they mean transplant for more than one year. So not in the first one year, which is appropriate because, you know, stuff happens in the first year, rejection and what have you. So stable for one year. The other thing is, as far as GFR is concerned, they needed a GFR from 15 to 89. So it was not just people with CKD, like transplant uh, CKD, but anywhere from 15 to 89 GFR is acceptable. But this GFR had to be stable. So the what they mean is that in the last six months before the study, the difference, uh, the GFR should not be more than 15% change in, in serum creatinine. So not someone whose GFR is progressing fast. So they are kind of looking for slow progressors or stable CKD, which is kind of paradoxical, maybe. I hate these kind of like arbitrary definitions, honestly, because... Yeah, what just would you prefer? Yeah. Oh, yes. What would I prefer? A risk-based definition, I mm -hmm. say. 
like a KFRE, uh, a dynamic KFRE. KFRE. Yeah, if you pick a KFRE-based definition, uh, you're probably better off because that's as the you- kidney failure risk equation that Dr. Yeah. Tangri is knows something about that. Or the Tangri uh, equation. First question. Yeah. Is Tangri validated in transplant? Yes, so absolutely. A different formula. Couple of papers. Same formula. Yeah, same formula. Same Couple. formula. No, same no verify. No. I just came up this week. Yeah. No. Okay. No. No change. But here's why. First, to Swap's point, regression to the mean. Okay. So someone who's, if you select on fast progression, like if you say slope of negative five mils per minute prior to inclusion in the trial, you'll regress to the mean. The slope in the it during the trial will always be regress to the mean. If you select on 15% as the stability narrow range. Actually, if you, you know, in the new CKD guidelines, when you look at the draft, it, we're saying that 20% variability is within normal. Same person measured a month later can have, can have a variability of 20%. So I think all of that is, is this is kind of these, you know, slopes before, variability before. Is it all bad? Just use the risk prediction equation. People who are high risk will have steeper slopes, the end. Right. It's then you, you then you're done with it. So and, and on my, this point, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So they may be excluded patients who should not be excluded. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but in a trial, if you want to have more events, shouldn't you pick people who have faster progression and not yeah. slower progression? Exactly. Yeah. But I think the argument there is that that they likely have a mechanism more sophisticated than just metabolic acidosis as their fast progression. They're probably right. rejecting. Right. And that and they don't. They're not supposing that this is going to be a replacement for. Rituximab? Rejection therapy. <laughs> Thank, you. Hey, Thank you for filling It's just all too cute, right? Like yeah. It's all kind of cute. It's like, it's yeah. too cute. Yeah, and, and Nayan is all, not a transplant nephrologist. He thinks people use rituximab in transplant. You know, ignore, ignore yeah, what he's I don't know what that is. <laughs> Tocilizumab, uh, is that better? I don't know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that was it. Uh, as far as the bicarb is concerned, they needed a bicarb, a bicarb, right? Which is to Nav's point about repeat measures. They needed a bicarb which was either 22 or lower. So, you know, not very acidotic. 22 is hardly acidosis. So even 22 would get you in the trial. In terms of exclusion, they, you know, if there are any major electrolyte imbalances or if they were receiving drugs that would uh, affect the acid-base disorders. So they say mineral corticoid antagonists, topiramate and carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. I don't know how often these drugs are used in transplant, but yeah, maybe spironolactone, but not the others. Which is odd because they're on calcineurin inhibitors, which are going to affect... Exactly, the acid base and electrolyte, exactly. So some arbitrary choices were made with that. They were randomly assigned one-to-one to to, uh, oral sodium bicarbonate or matching placebo. The randomization allocation concealment was done, uh, which was, you know, all appropriate. The randomization was properly done. Uh, They did stratify on the basis of uh, gender, interestingly enough. And as far as the uh, intervention is concerned, so this was sodium bicarbonate or matching placebo. And, you know, from a capsidology point of view, the placebos where they were kind of in a acid resistant capsule so uh, you know they were made such that uh, the patients would be truly blinded i guess so swap but the do- single yeah. blind yeah single so blind. patients obviously are blinded so the yeah. investigators were not unblinded i guess so they don't right. s- but and why, why do that right it was why? so easy why exactly. it was so easy should have exactly. blinded the investigators because yeah. there's enough natural variability in bicarb anyway they probably thought Oh, everyone's going to get like a three, four mil equivalent increase. It's not feasible to blind investigators because exactly. the investigators will know. But the reality is, like, 
people who are on placebo, sometimes their bicarb goes up. People who are on bicarb, sometimes their bicarb how goes down. They, how did they dose the bicarb in this study? Right. So the dose of the bicarb was uh, 1.5 to 4.5 grams per day in, in three divided uh, doses. So if your weight was less than 70 kg, they got 1.5 grams, like three pills of 500 milligram. And uh -huh. if you were more than 70 uh -huh. gram, you got three grams. That's, you know, 1000 milligram TID. And then they uh -huh. measured bicarb. So if the bicarb remained at 22 or less, then uh, the dosage of the trial drug or the placebo was uptitrated. So if you were on 1500, you would go to three. And if you were still on three and it was low, then you went to 4,500 milligram. And the target was t greater than 22? Two. And they started at 22 or low, right? So not yeah, I was going to say, they started right there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is, uh, so 1500 would be what, uh, 17 millimoles. I have to bring in millimoles just for the fun of it. Per day. Yeah. Of, of so, yeah. The molecular weight of sodium bicarbonate is 84. Yeah. For those following along at home. So the so daily <laughs> dosing was 18 milliequivalents to 58 milliequivalents per day. Uh, so let's talk about outcomes. So, you know, that the follow-up analysis is pretty straightforward. The outcome was GFR slope over the 24-month treatment phase. And they had a bunch of secondary out, out, uh, endpoints that we'll come to now. At, uh, but in terms of the statistical analysis, the, they were looking for a difference of 1.5 mils per minute per year of difference big difference yeah that's a so huge 1.5 that's a yeah, huge 5, exactly 1.5 is big and we can see whether they achieved 1.5 uh, and especially points, people who are they, enrolled with stable yeah. gfrs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah a couple of points on that i think one yeah. there's a whole fda you know kind of mm -hmm. fda nkf surrogate endpoint mm -hmm. meetings and they've established that 0.75 is a reasonable threshold and if you get a 0.75 difference that's probably enough for a clinical like that'll translate to a clinical benefit so this was twice the kind of the minimally important difference. And then I think the other thing to note is that bicarb, as expected, there's no acute drop. Mm -hmm. So you have good power with slope because there's no there's no like total oh, slope and chronic slope, right? It's, it's yeah, 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 there's yeah, no yeah, acute yeah. hemodynamic thing with bicarb. So exactly. that's a good thing. It favors the slope-based endpoint. Right, right. Uh, we have talked about acute and chronic slope on, on all the flows in uh, trials. Yeah, it comes uh, up all this, the time, right? Phenerenone yeah, too, same thing. Yeah, phenerenone, exactly right. Yeah. yeah, and and the other thing is here, they did not select patients who had 1.5 ml per minute per year loss, you know, for the last few years. That that would have made sense, right? You choose people who are progressing at 1.5, then the placebo should follow that path, and then in the intervention you could do that. So they did not. So that expected. part is harder, yeah, because you need like seven data points over two to three years to get a reliable slope at minimum. They're transplant patients. They get they're get their brain they checked do. every fair. two months. <laughs> and it's very, very true. Out. Yeah. They have yeah. a ton of creatinine. Fair, fair. Everybody had a slope. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. But you would probably need to have that data at mm -hmm. least to, to, mm -hmm. to be reliable. To right. know the previous those patients who are losing GFR one and a half I mean they they're probably gonna be getting other interventions. Correct. Also yeah. I think there's yeah. going to be a lot of other things that come into play outside of just the metabolic acidosis quote with a bicarb of 21, which was my big issue with this. A bicarb of 21 is, man, we jump for joy with the bicarb of 21. So I think like a lot we'll of things talk about results. be happening. Yeah, with your that, results so. are coming. But hold, hold yeah. so, are you a transplant? Your, a transplant yeah, yeah, Priya is the only uh, yes. transplant nephrologist. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, you know, like I did transplant during my fellowship, like you know, as we looked after transplant patients, but I haven't seen a transplant patient that looked after one one in like twelve years. Is this common? Like metabolic acidosis is very common in transplant patients. So I think it's going to be common, just like any other progressive CKD or in native kidneys. 
for the same level of GFR, you would would you expect to see more acidosis or is it like No, I would say same? just like especially okay. if the transplant is working as well yeah. as most of them do, I would consider them very similar to the native okay. native patients. Okay. Fair. Right. So um, they expected 1.5 loss in the placebo and they expected zero, like a flat line, no GFR loss in the in the intervention. That's what the trial was powered for. So uh, a difference of 1.5. With that, they needed 120 patients for like an 82% kind of power. So they, they were planning to recruit 240 patients. So we'll still see in the results how well that planned out. But the other outcomes, apart from the GFR slope, they looked at differences in bicarb, differences in pH. Differences in albuminuria, which, you know, uh, maybe some other trials have shown, which we'll shall see. Differences in mean uh, daytime systolic, diastolic. We're going to talk about the PACE trial. Oh, I interrupt all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, no, do it. We we love interruptions. Yeah, go ahead. The PACE trial, Kalani Raphael published in Jason, showed that on the higher dose of bicarb, there was more albuminuria. Exactly. this is why it's important to test for albuminuria. So right. that was, uh, and and, and that was, uh, uh, if we can talk about yeah. that, is it is the thought that it's because of the sodium load and blood pressure? Must be sodium. Or, I for sure yeah. it's got to be sodium in my view. And, and that would have been an advantage theoretically with Vivermir, which you know theoretically yes, yeah exactly yeah. Um, sodium so, bicarb doesn't raise blood it pressure. It required Vivermir to work though. Yeah, yes. <laughs> different different issue. This is what so so this is like hotly debated amongst all the investigators that I used to work with in the acid base world that sodium bicarbonate doesn't raise blood pressure. I agree with you, like in based on this trial, yes. But some say that sodium bicarbonate raises blood pressure if you're on a high salts diet, like if there's a lot of sodium chloride present. But it doesn't if you're on a low salt diet. And I like the studies are very small. This is beyond my area of expertise. But I've heard the debate that bicarbonate and chloride is bad. Bicarbonate alone, not bad. So two cents. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where the, the anion matters that sodium chloride together, yes, raises blood pressure. There's studies from the 20s that show even chloride alone raises blood pressure. And so theoretically, that's the key mediator, not the sodium in the absence of, so sodium phosphates, sodium bicarbonate, sodium citrates, et cetera, don't raise blood pressure, although they will potentially raise tissue sodium levels. That's what Captain Chloride would say. Chloride matters. Exactly right. Makes sense. sense. Chloride is always. My work here is done. done. I'm going to sign off. Goodbye, everyone. Have a good night. Planted question on chloride shows up. (laughs) Makes his point. Yeah. Yeah. So the the analysis was uh, intention to treat. I I won't go in the details. It was a pretty straightforward, uh, legitimate analysis. They do do a per protocol analysis also, which didn't matter i think that's all i will stop early on the methods the methods are you know apart from the nitpicking about single blind and the you know the patient choice uh it's a it's a good trial design uh like i can't poke hole too many holes uh, better than the ones that came before it yeah but but the, the big question is why do they single blind yeah it seems like they were halfway there they had the ball the ball and the goal and they don't punch it through and do a double blind mm-hmm. yeah. which seems weird yeah but uh otherwise it's simple straightforward mm-hmm that's yeah. the shortest shortest amount of time swaps ever talked about methods, methods on freely filtered. <laughs> Love it. That's because I keep interrupting. He's like, if I stop talking, he won't interrupt me. So, uh, no, no. so um, Joel asked this. So we'll ask you now. In terms of trial design, would you? How would you rate this uh, trial design? Like A, B, C? Would you give it a failing grade? I think it's of- a B. I, I really I, like as we've. I think as we've all said, like mm-hmm. the only thing I would have done differently was double blind. 
because mm-hmm. I think it's feasible in this case to double blind. But from trying to read their mind, I think the only thing that would have put them off was saying, how are we going to titrate buy car? Because, you know, there's going to be a difference. People will know. But I actually think there's enough random noise that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And so you should try to do it. Okay, cool. Yeah. All yours, Priya. What did what happened? Yes, and then what happened? Okay, so here we go. So this study was conducted from 2017 to 2019. Um, originally, there was 1,114 transplant recipients that were li- originally looked at for this trial. 872 were excluded per criteria, and 242 were eventually randomly assigned, 122 in the placebo arm, and 120 for the bicarb arm, and that was an even 50-50 split. And eventually two more patients dropped out, so a final total of 240 for our intention to treat. At the end of all of this, 44 Which is exactly what their power analysis (laughs) required. Like they they just, by the hair of their chinny chin chin, just got it. Yes. By the end of all of this, um, 44 patients did drop out with a final total of 196 patients, 99 people in the placebo arm, 97 in the bicarb arm. So 51% placebo and very closely matched 49% in the bicarb. So if we go ahead and look at table one, the baseline characteristics uh, were pretty similar between the two. If we go ahead and look at the allograft age, or what they're calling as time to transplantation, 9.1 years in the bicarb arm. I, I just, I'm just curious, how do they get African-Americans in a Swiss study? They have Africans and they have African-Americans as separate items on this trial. So with some Americans with Swiss banks or something who are <laughs> relaxing. And, so weird. Yeah. I mean, okay. usually often European studies will they not even... Hispanic. Yeah, yeah. European studies may often not even, uh, you know, uh, report uh, ethnicity yeah. because their, their dead databases don't capture these things. Uh, in, and now you have basketball players going out there, soccer players. Apparently. <laughs> apparently. Yeah, they, didn't say, they don't mention how many of them were soccer players. All the biases <laughs> coming out. <laughs> any, any, anybody from Arsenal in, the, in, this, in this trial, do we know? No, no. Granite Xhaka. No transplant patients most in the Arsenal? Fam- most famous Swiss Arsenal player is Granite Xhaka. And he's he now plays for Bayer Leverkusen, which is... That Leverkusen is the town where Bayer is from, and the team is actually called Bayer Leverkusen. Oh, so wow. that's an odd football nephrology arsenal fact. Any <laughs> any famous football players that have a kidney transplant? Manchester United, also known as Walmart FC, their uh, their wow. former striker Andy Cole, kidney transplant recipient. Okay. Yeah. We found some money. And why are they called Walmart FC? What's because you know, if you don't know who to follow, you just say like, "Oh, I support Manchester United." <laughs> Wow. I thought that was Man City now. That's Man City now, but for years, you know, like, this is me showing my age. Man City's Amazon. Man City, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Man City's Amazon. (laughs) We are learning so much. So interesting. Lots of sports on this uh, nephrology (laughs) podcast here. Okay. Okay, Larry Bird, keep it going. (laughs) Okay. um, Let's see here. I thought the year since transplant was interesting. These were old transplant mm-hmm. patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, quite a bit. Like ten years. That's not, that's not bad for a transplant age, to be quite honest, right? You wonder kind of if there's a selection bias, right? These are the somehow the stable people who got selected. Ten years out, GFRs of forty-eight. Wow, mm-hmm. pretty good. But the imbalance, the slate imbalance, and the repeat transplant and and diabetes is that enough to potentially skew results? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe because 
I don't know. Really? Why? What were the numbers for diabetes? Because for diabetes, the bicarb arm had about 5% for the original cause for diabetes. And for the placebo arm, it was 7%. So a little bit of you know, a shift from one arm to the other. In terms of the history of the allografts itself, there is 16% with a history of rejection in the bicarb arm and 21% of history of rejection in the placebo arm. And when it comes to repeat transplants, uh, 9% of the bicarb arm was a repeat transplant, while 14% in the placebo arm was a repeat transplant. So definitely not as even as, say, the other baseline characteristics um, when it comes to the allografts itself. Yeah, yeah. so I, I didn't talk about it for Boring Nyan, but he's bringing it out. So they did have, uh, they did adjust for certain baseline covariates in the methods. Uh, so, for example, they had uh, baseline GFR, baseline bicarb, age, gender, type of transplant, immunosuppressive medication, presence of DSA, baseline proteinuria, and history of acute rejection. So, they did have, they did have these factors uh, at baseline which should be adjusted for, which is pretty appropriate. They did not have repeat transplant, but they did have history of acute rejection. So, that part would be fixed in the analysis, which is okay. So then when it comes to our laboratory studies for our patients here, um, the mean GFR in the bicarb arm was 48.2 or 48, and for the placebo arm, 47.7. So very, very similar there. The mean bicarb at start of the trial was 21.3 in the bicarb arm and 21 in the not bicarb arm or the placebo Proteinuria was also looked at because that's going to be one of our secondary outcomes that we're looking at. The proteinuria was greater than 0.5 grams per day. 16% of that was in the bicarb arm and 19% of patients in the placebo arm. And over a gram a day, 5% of the bicarb arm had this versus 8% in the placebo arm itself. And those were a couple of the baseline characteristics that stuck out for me, essentially. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty high bicarb. Right. As your yeah. baseline bicarb. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of metabolic acidosis there to begin with. So what's the tubular maximum? What if, What's in CKD? Do we have a good answer to that? I don't know, right? Like if you, or do some people have a ceiling? Like after 23, are you just peeing it all out? I'm asking the question. I, I, I don't think anybody really I don't, knows. I don't know. Is there a tubular maximum? I thought those studies were done with giving infusions of bicarbonate. And so it was not under physiologic... Conditions. Right, so the argument is that those patients all given sodium loads, yeah. and so they're all fully hydrated. When yeah. the reality is, these patients, when they tend to get metabolic acidosis, are somewhat volume depleted, and their TM and their TMs are way higher. So 46, yeah. So I, again, I'm just asking questions because I think that these are some of the issues between why you don't get a separation. This trial did have a separation, but why you may get a small separation, big separation. You know, is there a cap? Like, can you raise it? to 25, 26, can you go all the way to high 20s if you wanted to? I doubt it, right? Because I've never seen a trial, no matter even giving the largest doses of bicarb, get these patients up to high 20s, let's say. So maybe there must be a ceiling somewhere. Okay. Wasn't there a trial where they got them up to 28 or something like that? I'll try to find Base it. trial would have been the normal bicarb people. I'll look up the high dose in base trial now. How many capsules did they eat? So capsules, man, pill burden is a lot for patients. For um, our bicarb group, 5.9 capsules, and for our placebo arm, 5.8. So about six, if you will, for each side. That's But that right there is very strange. You it's would expect. 
Now, you would expect people to take more bicarb in the placebo group. If you're targeting a serum bicarb and you're giving them something that shouldn't increase the bicarb, you should be prescribing more of the ineffective medicine than the effective medicine right? The effective medicine Fair. should raise the bicarb more mm -hmm. than the placebo. And they actually found no difference. And in fact, numerically a slightly higher number in the active drug, which mm -hmm. is weird. Nine is 26 in the base trial of the higher dose of bicarb. They got them up from 24 to 26. And the placebo group went from 24 to 23 and a half. So the biggest difference you could ever see was in the base trial at, at only at week 12. And at 28 weeks out, that difference was one, one to 1. 1.5 in the base trial. Me so. pouring more cold water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need it, right? Like there has been so yeah. much enthusiasm. Yeah, you need yeah. a dose of, dose of harsh yeah, reality. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize, this is so much more bicarb than yeah. was given in the London initial trial and the UBI where they got yeah. these big deltas in bicarb with very small doses. This is more consistent with what bicarb does in my hands yeah. where I feed it to patients and yeah. their bicarb really doesn't change much. And they're like, do I need more bicarb? I'm like, I'm not going to give you any more bicarb. Plenty <laughs> of enough. bicarb that's now. You know, yeah, that's right. You know, it, once, once I'm at, literally once I'm at 1300 TID, I'm, I'm done. I don't go yeah. any higher than that, but that usually doesn't normal. Uh, mm. Often, let me rephrase it. That oftentimes will not normalize an advanced CKD patient with metabolic acidosis, at least in my hands. And if it normalizes, maybe it was a regression to mean. Yeah. Yeah, it was transient. No, I claim was... I claim all regression for means as my success. Yeah. All regression for means and me being an excellent doctor. Yeah. Stop raining on my successes. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Hypertension Treatment. Yeah. Yeah. What happened to the GFRs? Tell yes. Us so, <laughs> yes. If, there are results eventually. <laughs> eventually. Usually it takes this this long to get through methods, but results is you know, we're kind of powering through. So our primary outcome um, in this would be essentially the EGFR course or decline. And looking at figure 2A, we see that there is no statistical significance between the two groups when it came to the EGFR decline. At uh, two years of following these patients in the bicarb arm, the EGFR went from 48.2 to 45.5. And in the placebo arm, the EGFR went from 47.7 to 46.2. So when looking at each of these arms, it was very much a similar distribution uh, when it came to the EGFR slope. I get a drop of one and a half milliliters per minute per year with the placebo and 2.7 milliliters per minute per year with the bicarb. That was just kind of me doing the math on the margins of the yes. Um, that's Yes, that's essentially what it comes better down results to when with, you look at that. Better results with the placebo. Yeah. <laughs> Marginally. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll give a bit of context here, uh, just a mm -hmm. more random context. Yeah, yeah. If you look at large SCLT2 inhibitor trials, yeah. like Canvas, Credence, et cetera, and you divide people up into three buckets, low, medium, and high risk, the low-risk people progress at about 1.3 mils per minute per year. The intermediate risk are about 2.5, and, and the high risk are about 5. So these were progressing at a similar rate to a low-risk person with diabetic kidney disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. With all of the immunosuppressive medications yeah. that kind all of go along board. with this. Yeah. And, a low rate of, and a low rate of diabetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what you'd expect based on the inclusion criteria, right? These are... Mm -hmm. Nine-year-old kidneys that have been stable for, they right? for a I very guess, stable group. I yeah, think you're right. right. 
but I think maybe some of us all, like maybe naive people like me who don't do transplant, would think like, oh, well, transplant should be, it's riskier because, you know, transplants fail within like two decades. So it must be, it must be faster than native kidney disease. But I guess it's not. If you're stable, if you're stable at transplant, maybe you just grumble along at one to two mils per minute and actually you die of a competing event, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not that you get, yeah. Not to or if, they, exactly. or if yeah. things were heading yeah. ugly, they were not yeah. enrolled in this trial. They were not exactly. enrolled in this trial. Yeah. 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 In, in fact, you know, uh, death with a functioning graft is the more, most Far common more common cause probably, yeah, right? than, than yeah. a failure yeah. of graft these days. Yeah, not necessarily graft failure. It's o- only in transplant is that considered a success. He died. <laughs> we'll take it. Was, was the graft kidney was working? working. Yeah, was the, the graft kidney, kidney was working? Another win. <laughs> like, he died of overwhelming sepsis, <laughs> but he had a cranny to two. Yeah. He was still making urine. It all yes. works out. <laughs> um, okay. Don't start that dialysis. <laughs> yeah. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> no. What happened to the bicarb? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the mean bicarb in the bicarb group ended up being 22.5 and in the placebo group 20.7. So that was statistically significant in terms of the change of bicarb during this actual study itself. They also looked at the change in pH. Um, we were talking about VBGs versus serum And I want to add that that, cha- that delta bicarb is very consistent with the very the other successful open label CKD trials that we've seen. Like this is not like a oh they didn't get a good separation of bicarb. Their separation of bicarb was fine here. Yeah, I totally agree. Compared to the compared to previous positive trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Unblinded what? from Italy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. aka vegas vegas baby yeah. when it comes down to uh the ph um the ph changes at three months the bicarb group went from 7.37 to 7.39 and when looking overall between the two groups the ph at the end for the bicarb group was 7.38, and then the placebo group went to 7.36, which was also statistically significant when it came to the secondary outcomes. One of our last uh, secondary outcomes was the urine to albumin creatinine ratio, and there was no statistical significance between the two groups here at uh, two years. So what they did find at the end of two years was in the bicarb group, the UACR was 5.7% higher than the placebo arm. However, this was not statistically significant. And lastly, we see the office blood pressure monitoring. It did not show any difference when it came to the treatment arm versus the placebo arm. And same thing with 24 They did 24 hours, hours yeah. They did That's very hours. cool. So they were good yeah. blood pressure monitorings. It wasn't just one-time situations. So You know why? Because sodium bicarb doesn't have chloride in it. That's exactly <laughs> what Captain Chloride said. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> so then we, we move on towards the other subgroup analysis. We're looking at the EGFR slopes that showed no benefit when it came to bicarb. And the groups that we were looking at were time to transplant, deceased versus living donation, HLA sensitization, the type of immunosuppression the patients were on, the baseline serum bicarb, and then the baseline EGFR. So essentially, when we look at each of those little subgroups, the slopes did not have any significant changes when it came to the two arms itself. And would we have expected anything? Priya, like, what's this whole thing about mycophenolate absorption and bicarbonate? And do you actually worry about that? Yeah, so I I was kind of thinking about this, like, how would that have 
changed my thought process about this. And when it comes to the types of immunosuppression, we have our major ones, but I don't know for certain if I can say that the type of immunosuppression with a bicarb would make any difference. I guess the only thing that I can think of is, say, GI upset with mycophenolate, um, and that might be closely related to the bicarb. However, a lot of times we might do some dose adjustments or changes to the mycophenolate before we could ever really see the diarrhea get so bad that would it affect a bicarb. So I think and that typically would be, be early in their transplant, of course, very, not very nine early, years later. Not necessarily you know, eight to nine years later. And even then, if it was happening, that type of patient probably wouldn't be included in the study because it wouldn't have been a stable patient. So I think that's why very, very, very stable patients were found to be a part of this study, not necessarily the patients that we would be looking at in our tr- clinics that would need bicarb for other reasons, essentially. GFR might be a little bit worse. They might be having other issues. So I think it might be a little tough to say uh, that the bicarbon immunosuppression would be so so similar, if you will. It's kind of wild. Look at the baseline bicarbonate. So to be enrolled in the trial, you had to have a bicarbonate of 22 or less. And 41% of the people who contributed had a baseline bicarbonate greater than or equal to 22. I presume it's 22. 22. 22. 22. Yeah. 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 It has to be 22, right? Yeah. The people at 20, 21, and 22 are like 9 out of 10 compared to the people at 12 to 19. If you think about it, they all cluster yeah. around 20, 20. Everyone kind of clusters right. around 20. Interesting. Interesting. Bell curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll move on to the adverse events then. Looking at table three for our adverse events in the bicarbonate group, there were 35 events in 15% of the patients. In the placebo arm, there were 57 events, and that came up in 23% of the patients. When it came to the most common adverse event, they considered this hypertension and fluid overload. This was found to be similar in both of the groups. Hypokalemia was infrequent, but one of the notable adverse events. However, there were more that was in the bicarb arm, but not necessarily statistically significant. If we move on to the most serious adverse events that would include infections, GI disturbances, and cardiac disorders, there was a total of 77 events. 30 events in the bicarb arm for 16% of the patients. In the placebo arm, there were 47 events, which was 27% of the patients. And in this specific sense, heart failure and bone fractures were similar between both of the arms. And when it comes to graft failure, which is, of course, one of the things that we look at in our transplant patients, in the placebo group, 4 of 120 patients, or 3% of the patients, had graft failure and needed to go back on dialysis, while in the bicarb group, there were no graft failures itself. And then finally, it's rounding out... It's an immunosuppressant. Out, this is what we've been... We've missed the boat the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chance um, findings. Yes. Chance findings. Yeah. And then finally, when we come to patient deaths, there were three patients that died in the entire cohort. Two were in the placebo arm, one of COVID and one of cardiac arrest. And then the other death was in the bicarb arm. And that was a one was sudden cardiac um, death. So just overall, any signal in the adverse events or is this a, there's nothing here? No. My sense is that there's nothing here. Mm -mm. Okay. Not really. It's placebo all the way down. This stuff just doesn't work. Yeah. It, 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 it fixes the number. The number comes up. Yes. The number gets yeah. better. Yeah. So bicarb does raise 
your bicarb level, which uh, this is a positive trial for that. So, um, <laughs> so and I think that's it for the results. What's this figure four trying to show me? What, why is this different than what we've seen before? What's the idea here? EGFR course analyzed by linear mixed model. So I'll be quite honest. In one of my little notes to myself, it says ask swap. And I have a question mark. Yeah, this is a <laughs> WTF. That's what I had. Okay. It literally what says is... ask swap. <laughs> swap, for. we're asking you. Nav, we're asking you. I'm going to pull up the thing? figure. I'm going to pull up the figure. I, I, I had read your NEFJC and I didn't have, I had that pulled up and not the paper. So I'm going to pull up the figure and then I'm That's gonna... how good our NEFJC summaries are. Yeah, yeah your NEFJC summaries are often answer. better than the papers. So. This is the one where they looked at uh, the covariates. They added the covariates to the GFR yeah. slope. Yeah. That's what, so the only purpose of doing a linear mixed model would be so that you could do covariate adjustment. That would be the only reason. So, okay. And they did not I see anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, line, so still lines, you don't yeah. see anything. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Priya, give us your, your overall thoughts here. Um, so I think I'm happy that there is a trial and transplant. I think we all kind of talked about it. It's really difficult to find good studies that don't necessarily get clouded in the world of transplant. We do a lot of extrapolation from native kidneys to transplant. And I think this, I'm glad we did it. I think when it comes down to the patients that they use, they were very, very stable patients with bicarb levels that I guess we're on just like the higher side of, you know, they're just on the higher side of what I would really jump at, I would say. So I think it kind of just shows that it's not always about EGFR, right? But at the same time, we're not going to forget the importance of bicarb. And I think this just shows that you just have to look at all the different things that go with EGFR CKD progression of an allograft. And in bicarb, it might not be the most important ones, but shouldn't be forgettable either. I want to just point out that they did when they stratified it by various subgroups, they looked at baseline bicarb. And it, there's no signal that the lower bicarbs get advantage from the drug. Even though they enrolled a lot of people with high bicarbs, it doesn't look like, oh, the people that were less than 18, those people really benefit. All right. So let me ask the question. You talked about the 2012 guidelines, 2B, right? 2B means there's moderate certainty of evidence that you should do this for most people, right? Yeah. In the new guidelines, the draft, it's no longer a recommendation. It's now just a practice point. And I'm going to read it out. In people with CKD, consider using dietary or pharmacological treatment to prevent severe acidosis, example, bicarb less than 16, Wow, that's a walk back. That's a huge change. That's a huge walk change. Back. Yeah, and I All guess right, people so. people are reluctant to not do something when a number is too low, right? I was going yeah. to ask this, right? When you de de I'm not on the deprescribing bandwagon yet, but I think I should go on that. What is the bike up threshold people have? At least 16, the number that we are comfortable with? I think it's just, of course, like the age of the allograft, of course, uh, you know, younger allografts we might be a little bit more patient with compared to the older ones. If someone walked in to me nine or 10 years out with a bicarb of 20 or 21, I would be like, hey, congratulations, your allograft is working really well. We get labs so often, we might as well watch it. So I think 16 is a great number. I think for me personally, maybe like prolonged you know, anything less than 20 would be mine. Yeah. In CKD, I was around it's, 20. It's just yeah. tough. Yeah. Yeah. I was it's around 20 tough. and I'm thinking I should reevaluate that practice. Maybe. Yeah. So I've moved to 18. Okay. Yeah. I will now de-prescribe you until you're an 
uh, less than 18. But why even 18? I don't know. Where, where I, I don't does know. that come from? Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're completely right with that. Why 18? I yeah, don't know. It's just I, I, two I less know. than and 20. Why, Who knows? I think in the guidelines, they had to sort of pick something. And so they picked 16. But it's a practice point. So it acknowledges that it's a practice point. It's just opinion. Mm-hmm, so yeah. 18 is just another opinion. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, But for me, 18 means a lot of deprescribing. Because I was treating most people... Yeah. at 20 yeah. to 21 so that's a lot yeah. of deep prescribing mm-hmm. you know and i'm talking about less than 18 so that means 17 yes. really mm-hmm. it's not 18 right it's not less than or equal to 18 so yeah. maybe so 16, you guys don't 17. think at all there's something different about swiss kidneys versus other kidneys if it was a longer trial a different patient population you're taking baking so, soda and arm and hammer the side behind the now. shed yeah, no, I don't think so. I think the burden of proof is on the other side now. I think now you got to show me a positive trial that's double blind before I change my practice. Before it was you got to show me a negative double blind trial to make me not prescribe. Now I think it's the other way. Mm-hmm. You got to show me a positive double blind trial before I prescribe, before I change my mind. It's a lot of pills, right? It's just a lot yes, of pills. Yes, yes. Now talk to me about FOSS binders. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's same same mess. We're in a mess, right? Like yeah. I think there are, thankfully there are ongoing trials, but maybe that number is two in, I'm talking about Canadian units. What's yeah. two in American units? Six? Yeah, two millimoles, six, something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's six. So now that number is six. We don't treat about below six. Because who knows? Does it even do anything? A lot of pills. It's also a lot of pills. A lot of pills. Yeah. And, it, pills and it never pills. works. It never works. <laughs> and and they're not well-tolerated medications. No. Not at the doses we use in that. Yeah. So many meds already. So trying to convince myself to put someone on bicarb for like a bicarb of 20, you know, on top of all the other meds, I think I'll just pick and choose my battles. And since we get our lab so often, I'm able to watch it a lot closely than say other, you know, doctors for other different types of patients. So I do have that luxury of being able to watch a bicarb far closely than some other sets of patients. Yeah. I'm at the same camp as, as you know, Nayan, as you on the fruit and vegetable side. That's a different issue. Like, I think there's lots of other mm-hmm. surrogate benefits to fruits and vegetables. In fact, we have a fruits and vegetables trials ongoing mm-hmm. in people with mild metabolic acidosis. But even as we're doing the trial, I'm like, really, we're testing nutrition. We're not really right. testing correction of acidosis. So yep, we're just yep. testing nutrition. Among yeah. the many benefits of this oh, may be yeah. improvement in blood count. Yeah. 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 But, the, but they, they showed improvement in blood pressure, improvement in LP yeah. little a, yeah. whatever that is. Yeah. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 But hard okay. outcomes are different, right? Let's let's wait for the hard outcomes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fruits exactly. and vegetables are expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turns out. Naya, you sound like you're a, an acidosis believer. Do you have any, what are your thoughts on the study? So although I don't understand basic science, I still like it. And so I I do still think there's intriguing mechanisms behind it that haven't translated into hard outcomes yet. Whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to completely abandon. It's the same thing we talked about at the beginning. Transplanted kidneys aren't the same as native kidneys. You can do it the other way. This trial doesn't, you know, relate to native kidneys. If there's anything you could take from the SGLT2 inhibitor era is we should mechanisms. (laughs) <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> like, yeah, they're supposed to cause AKI, you know, potentially be harmful for CKD. And look at what's turned out, right? Like, yeah. mechanisms are post hoc, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Biological pl- plausibility. Yeah. 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 
that's the on the tombstone of it's many, weak many. Sauce. Yeah, it's the reality. It is. It is. It's yeah. weak sauce. Yeah, and I like that it's post hoc because that's usually what happens. Is like here's an observation. Exactly. How do we explain it? Yeah, even in the CKD literature, right? Once you throw out those couple of really bad, implausible trials, there's really nothing. The the effect uh, even yeah. in CKD is not there. Sunil Bhatway did the best meta-analysis on this. Sunil, okay. it, it was in KI reports. Okay. And the unfortunate thing was that the best four spot from that meta-analysis is buried in the supplement. So most people don't read it because it's in the supplement. He breaks it down by two things, like either placebo-controlled or non-placebo-controlled, like non-blinded, unblinded or blinded. Then he breaks it down by low risk of bias or high risk of bias. And it's like there's no effect or there's an effect, basically. High risk of bias, unblinded trials, were the only positive trials for metabolic acidosis. I am shocked as a nephrologist that normalizing numbers doesn't induce change. It's sad. <laughs> it is. I haven't seen that before. So Hope, hopefully nobody else reads this trial. We can still live live with the illusion that fixing the numbers fixes the patient. It's an important part of our field. <laughs> I was still sort of reluctantly not reluctantly. It's hard not to fix the number, right? Uh, but yeah, after this discussion, exactly after this discussion and and looking at the draft. Kidaigo guidelines, I like that, right? It, it gives me permission to not treat. It gives you permission. To not treat and not fix the number until it's really bad. And I actually think it gives permission to the believers, like Kalani Raphael, who's a very good scientist, who's been forced to do trials in people with normal bicarb. Now he can take this recommendation and say, I want to study people between 16 and 20. And I really believe in bicarb, you know? So before, I think. IRBs wouldn't let you do a trial at some places. For Valor, I can tell you, in in like in some centers, they wouldn't let us randomize to placebo. Right. right? So, so, oh so this God. can essentially open it up. It opens up the field to studying moderate to severe acidosis. If right. you if you believe that's, that that's good because those are the patients that we're really wanting to kind of zero in, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the stable patients with a bicarb of twenty one. So you're saying Dr. Wesson is. Popping champagne right now? <laughs> no, he's not. I'll confirm. He was also one of the Vermeer investigators, so he's also not popping champagne. I talked to Dr. Wesson after your presentation at the um, at ASN, and he he really beat himself up because he, he it sounded like he was a big proponent for this trial design, yeah. where they randomize everybody in that single blind format to everybody yeah. on drug or single arm format, yeah. or everybody was on drug and then withdrawal. Yeah. And he really felt that that set them up for failure. And I, I don't think, think so. I think it's all was effective. It was an aggression. All to funny me. hindsight. Yeah. All hindsight. Yeah. You just would, there's no chance that you would have you would know this based on the data that was shown previously. In fact, everything would have led you to believe that you would see a big separation, except you didn't. <laughs> so, except for we did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Dr. Wesson, you are off the hook. Off the it's hook, your and you're still the best. You know, he's... We all love you. The yeah. drug just didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anybody else have any thoughts on this, or are we done? Put this to bed. Let's put baking soda to bed. We got other fish to fry. Like Goodbye, we got... Armin Hammer. Yeah. Okay, Arnie Hammer. We're done here. R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Armin Hammer. I see. Okay. Time for tubular secretion swap. What are you reading now? I'm actually waiting for the three body. There's something called three body problem. It's a it's a set of science fiction novels by Liu Cixin. My copy hasn't arrived, but I got a short stories by him. He's a Chinese science fiction author, and I'd heard about it for a long, long time. I'm reading those stories, and they are 
there the science part of the science fiction is extremely well done you know it reminds me of the old classic science fiction you know heinlein and asimov and stuff uh, it, it's very interesting so i'm, I'm all, looking, the, all the misogyny of heinlein uh, no 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 misogyny uh, but the, the science <laughs> part of it uh, and it's uh, it seems the three body problem is being made into a netflix uh, series uh, so it's yeah, coming up that's soon. right yeah it's like Excellent. the it's like the Excellent. hard science fiction, right? With the science. He won a big award. Did he won? Did he win a Hugo or a Nebula something like that? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Naim, what do you got? We are recording this on the opening day of the Women's World Cup of Soccer. Both host countries won today. I think it was New Zealand's first ever win in a Women's World Cup, and Go so New Zealand. the U.S starts tomorrow and they go for a historic three-peat and what's cool about this is my son who just turned six sports is his life right now and so it's going to be a lot of fun to watch games with him and i like that they've made the schedule so that u.s and canada games are in the evening so 6 7 p.m so that we can watch nice nice is u.s team supposed to be solid do they, get, uh, they are to win uh, and who are yeah. the other contenders besides the u.s us canada canada canada, canada? yeah nice okay Excellent. It's funny, like in women's soccer, we are up there. In men's soccer, we are nowhere. The U.S. feels you, Canada. Alfonso. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me, I spend a lot of time uh, looking forward to the next uh, English Premier League season, watching Arsenal win the title, hopefully this year. And then other than that, reading a lot about inflation, actually, which I think is such a, is such a unique thing that we haven't seen in two decades. And, you know, watching what the federal banks, uh, the you know, the federal reserves and the equivalent in Canada, what they're doing about it and how it's transitioning from goods to services and how do you try to prevent inflation from becoming entrenched? Really boring stuff for most people, but fun for me. So I like to read about it. I just put all my money in Silicon Valley Bank and don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're bound to do great things with that one right there. Yeah. I put it on Verimer, so <laughs> <laughs> let it ride on Verimer. Come on, Chrysida. Don't don't take it. Yeah, yeah. Take electrolyte advice from Joel, not investment advice. <laughs> yeah. Priya, what do you got? I have been watching a show. I'm not sure if people have already talked about this on previous episodes. It's called Silo on Apple TV Plus, and it's based on a book. And the idea is it is essentially a dystopian, uh, futuristic show where there is a colony of you know people that live in a silo that's built underground and essentially it is hundreds of floors people live underground have little societies all their you know interactions and no one is allowed to go up to earth's surface for whatever reason so um it's just kind of fun i watch it before i go to bed and it seems to be pretty enticing so far so if you need something to watch and you're into sci-fi check it out excellent silo on apple tv okay it starts rebecca ferguson i think she's the one who was in dune yes yeah correct correct yeah. correct and so far it's it's pretty good i i really like it so far so so just this week housing was opened up to non ASN fellows. So I hope everybody's going to be going to ASN Kidney Week. It's always a good time. This is back to the old traditional Philadelphia. A lot of people, a lot of Philadelphia haters out there. I actually think it's an excellent convention center. I'm a big fan of Philadelphia. Just it's expensive. Very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it's all tax deductible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially if you invested in the wrong stocks. Yeah. If you put it, you just, like I said, just keep it in Silicon Valley Bank. You'll be all right. Uh, 
and you know you can sell some bitcoin now okay and uh that's right yeah oh, it's man. up like 50 percent this that year guys get in on that bit getting crazy that, zoomed, is, is, that is cryptocurrency gold, yeah and nft uh, of joel's picture yeah right we got that that, that so, should get you that should pay for your hotel yeah. what but NFJC every year throws the best ASN Kidney Week party. This year will be no different. We traditionally do it on Friday night. We are mixing it up a little bit. This year, from 7 to 9, we will be recording a live version of Freely Filtered at ASN Kidney Week. We will be doing a draft of the late-breaking clinical trials that come out Friday morning. So if you miss that session or you were cursed and had to present your poster during late-breaking clinical trials, don't worry. Freely Filters got you covered. And and special guest stars, the Curbsiders. We'll have Matt Watto and Paul Williams joining us for that. Additionally, we will have a veterinary nephrologist talking about the intricacies of dialyzing horses, pet cats, and dogs. You will get to see that at NFJC, pod, uh, the Freely Filtered Podcast. We will have Kalimovirus. What's this guy's name? This screaming, yeah, screaming, screaming, screaming what, what is it? Screaming pectoraloquy. The oh yeah, you know, the lung screaming pectoraloquy. Yeah, will be unmasked and will be <laughs> on stage with us. He will be there. Yeah, he will be there. So, and we'll hopefully have a few other guests. It should be great. We will have limited seating. This is the unfortunate thing. It was hard to find a good venue for this, so there will not be a lot of seats. If you want to go, you can go to NEFJC. We'll have it on the homepage. You can buy tickets. We will have variable pricing. If you buy the tickets early, they will be the most expensive. So encourage you to buy late. That's actually not what we want you to do. We want you to buy. We really want you to support NEFJC. We are completely supported by our listeners and participants. We get no industry support. This is a leap we made last year to go to full have doctors support us and we run a tight ship it doesn't cost us a lot of money to run fjc but we do need some money there'll be an open bar at the podcast taping and then after that from 9 to 11 we will be just hanging out in the bar and we'll and that that is free and you can come there but that is not an open bar you will have to is the open bar available to people on stage Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> to order a double. Make sure there's plenty of stuff for you. Yeah. Yeah.